It's February 12, 2019, and the swirling snow is settling across the car park of the First Church in Pembroke, Massachusetts. The ground is slippery underfoot from recent snowfall, but inside, the benches are still packed. The people of the town have braved the elements to come out in force, to what has become an annual vigil being held in memory of one of their most beloved residents. Virginia Hannon, or Ginny, as she was known to many, died in 1984, aged 59, but many still remember her fondly. She had been a cook and a lunch lady at a local school and a pillar of the community. Ginny is spoken about like the kind of grandmother everyone wishes they had. Locals have come to pay their respects, but it's more than just that. Ginny was torn away from them when she was brutally murdered in her own home 35 years ago killed by an unknown assailant. They aren't just here tonight to remember Ginny. They're here to demand justice. As well as the friends and family who have turned out in force, are members of the local police department, news crews from Channel 25, and district attorney Tim Cruz. The hope is that in bringing the case back into the spotlight, someone, somewhere, might be prompted to come forward with information. After the priest opens the service, Tim Cruz walks to the front and addresses the crowd. Somebody has not been held accountable, he tells them. Somebody has done a terrible thing. I'm hopeful that we will come to a resolution in this matter. But following decades of no progress, it's going to take more than just hope to kickstart the case. Also in attendance is Pembroke Police Chief Rick Wall. He's interviewed by Channel 25 outside in the car park once the vigil ends. I was one of her paper boys, he tells reporters. And she was my lunch lady at school. She was just a piece of the neighborhood. It's clear from the way he speaks about her that she had touched so many lives in this small town before she was murdered. Chief Wall is committed to getting justice for Ginny and believes the case is still solvable even after all this time. Things have changed a lot from 35 years ago, he says. We're trying to take what evidence we have and adjust to new technology. It's a reference to the huge strides in forensic science since Ginny's murder. Advances that he hopes could now help unmask her killer. The speeches from her family are amongst the most emotional. Her niece by marriage, Judy Hannon, makes an impassioned plea of her own. Some think it's 35 years ago, and it's too late, she says. It's never too late to do the right thing. She lives two doors down from the house where Ginny was murdered. She tells reporters that even now, she can't help but picture what happened to Ginny every time she drives past her aunt's house. On the way out of the vigil, there's a stack of candles next to a sign that implores people to take one in Ginny's memory. There's no questioning the strength of feeling amongst the town, the desire to see justice done. The original investigation struck out pretty quickly, so they're under no illusion that it's going to be an easy ride. What none of them could know as they file out of the church is that the biggest break in the case is less than a year away. A man by the name of Jesse Aylward will give a shocking confession. If what he reveals is true, it could blow the case wide open. After 35 years, 
Could Ginny Hannon's murderer finally be brought to justice? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Jesse Aylward, of the words he allegedly spoke before he died, the crime that stripped away any sense of safety from a small town in Massachusetts, the huge sum of money reputed to have brought about the death of one of the most beloved citizens of the town of Pembroke, and the man who claimed to have the answer to a riddle that baffled police for decades. Who killed Ginny Hannon? I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. It's February 11th, 1984, a sleepy Saturday in Pembroke, Massachusetts. People are nestled in their homes, sheltering from the tail end of winter. Pembroke is halfway between Boston and Cape Cod. It's a small town with only 13,000 inhabitants, the kind of place where everyone seems to know each other's business. Ginny Hannon has lived here all her life. Home is a small yellow cottage on West Street, around three miles from the town center. It's part of a waterfront community near a lake called Little Sandy Bottom. Since her husband Joe passed in 1971, she's lived alone, but is far from lonely. Ginny is always on the go, chatting to neighbors and hosting lawn parties. She's a cook at nearby Bryantville Elementary School, where she's well-loved by both staff and pupils. Known for her love of baking, Ginny is often seen dishing out extra treats to the students and other local kids. In her spare time, she looks after stray animals, feeding any that turn up. So much so that she has an almost daily stream of furry visitors. Ginny is also a caregiver for her stepfather, who lives just two doors down from her. She takes him out to lunch, runs him to the grocery store, and helps with a dozen other tasks that mean the world to him. Giving back to others is just a part of who she is. Ginny's caring nature extends far beyond Pembroke. Up until last year, she had an elderly aunt who lived in California, and Ginny used to make the 3,000-mile trip as often as she could. When her aunt sadly passed away in 1983, Ginny was surprised to learn that she had inherited a sizable sum of money, $380,000, or more than 14 times the average salary in the U.S. at the time. The money allows her to retire early, but other than that, her day-to-day -day life remains fairly simple. Caring for her stepfather, baking for local kids, afternoon coffee with friends. As she adapts to the slower pace of retirement, Ginny talks quite openly about her windfall with others in town, and it leads to gossip. Some say that she keeps stacks of cash stashed in her house, it's these rumors that some believe sparks a tragic chain of events ending in murder. Ginny Hannon is a creature of habit, and on Saturday, February 11th, 1984, she travels four miles southwest to the nearby town of Hanson 
to attend a mass at 5 p.m. She meets up with a friend beforehand, a lady by the name of Dolly Harmouth. The two go way back and often have dinner together after the service. On this occasion, they head to Halifax, a town seven miles to the south, and eat at a place called BR's Restaurant. Dolly then drives Ginny home, dropping her off at her cottage around 7.30 that evening. Dolly watches her friend walk along the path and climb the steps towards her front door. She doesn't know it, but this is the last time she'll see her friend alive. It's Monday, February 13th, 1984, around 36 hours after Dolly dropped Ginny off. Most of the residents of Pembroke are either at work or school. The housekeeper who works for Ginny's stepfather has made the short walk along West Street from his place to Ginny's. She's forgotten her key and needs to get the spare that Ginny keeps in her cottage. She heads up the path and notices the curtains are still drawn. She perhaps wonders if Ginny is just sleeping in. She knocks on the front door and listens for the sound of footsteps, but it's all quiet inside. She's about to knock again when she glances down and sees that the doorframe around the lock looks damaged, as if it has been forced. Stepping inside, she shouts a greeting. There's no reply. She walks cautiously through the cottage, calling Ginny's name. Maybe Ginny is sick and laid up in bed. She heads there next to check, footsteps echoing in the otherwise silent house. She steps inside the bedroom, and her hand flies to her mouth as she struggles to process what she's seeing. Ginny is in bed, but she's not sick. She is dead. The housekeeper calls 911 and it's not long before the cottage is crawling with police. The first officers to respond head into the bedroom to secure the scene and examine the body. At 59, it's possible Ginny died of natural causes, but Upon closer inspection, that theory is categorically ruled out. They find her laid out in bed as the housekeeper had described, her body covered by a sheet like a shroud, only her face showing. When they eventually peel it back, the full extent of her injuries is shocking. She has been badly beaten. Amongst the marks on her body is what appears to be a shoe imprint on her abdomen, suggesting she's either been kicked or stomped on. And as if that wasn't bad enough, she's been stabbed a total of seven times. Six of the wounds are to the stomach, and the seventh is in one of her eyes. None of these are the actual cause of death, though. After having been subjected to such a horrific attack, her killer used her own stockings to strangle her. The savage nature of the crime sends shockwaves throughout the community. It's the kind of town where many folks are used to leaving their doors unlocked. It's going to take swift action by the police to restore any sense of peace to Pembroke. They need to act, and act fast. Once Ginny's body is removed, officers set about processing the crime scene. Amongst the items they collect are shards of broken glass from the door stained with blood, although they're not sure at this stage if it's Ginny's or her attacker's. A number of wadded-up, blood-stained paper towels also get bagged up for analysis, along with the stockings that were used to strangle her. In 1984, the field of DNA analysis is very much in its infancy and has yet to be used to secure a criminal conviction anywhere in the world. It's not something officers are familiar with. 
So the collection of these items is more to help police build a picture of how the murder occurred than identify the attacker. The first line of inquiry that investigators consider is a burglary gone wrong. There is no evidence of sexual assault, and there has been a string of break-ins recently, although they've yet to make any arrests. They speak to the last person to see Ginny alive, her friend Dolly Harmouth. Dolly remembers Ginny having around $100 on her the night she saw her last. That cash is nowhere to be seen, but other than that, nothing else appears to be missing from her house. Speculation is rife that Ginny's newfound wealth could have led someone to target her. Given the brutality of the murder, it'd be easy to assume that the attack was personal in nature, that some had had it out for the beloved community member, but it appears Ginny had no known enemies. This makes police focus on whether her injuries were inflicted to extract information about the whereabouts of her cash windfall. As it is, almost every cent is in the bank, still accounted for. Whoever killed her, they didn't get rich off the back of it. The senseless murder has stunned the whole town, but nobody feels it harder than her stepfather. Her death leaves a huge void in his life. Losing someone like that is enough to shake anyone. He's so affected by her death, he moves away from where it all happened. The team of investigators cast the net wide, from family and friends to well-known criminals with a track record for breaking and entering. They make a list of people they want to speak with in connection to the murder. In total, police carry out over 50 interviews, but frustratingly, they lead nowhere. Nobody they speak to had seen Ginny in the 24 hours between her being dropped off and the discovery of her body. And not only are no arrests made, but they don't even uncover a single suspect to focus their efforts on. As investigators chase their tales, neighbors who walk down West Street in the days following her murder report seeing a number of stray dogs and cats arriving at Ginny's cottage. They hang around for hours, expecting that any moment now, she'll come out and greet them. They linger, waiting for the treats that will never come. It begins to feel like a metaphor for the investigation. Just like the animals, the town waits for the police to announce that they have Ginny's killer in custody. But despite the initial flurry of activity, the case quickly grinds to a halt. No suspects, no arrests, no justice for Ginny. Ginny's murder slips into the cold case pile. It stays open, but more out of hope than expectation. The police have no news to share on the case for another 35 years. That doesn't deter Ginny Hannon's family from making regular inquiries and talking about her every opportunity they get. They keep her memory alive by holding an annual vigil. They don't know it yet, but this latest one in 2019 will be the last one they'll ever hold. The fact that the service at the First Church in Pembroke attracts such a large turnout so long after Ginny's death is evidence of just how loved she was. There's a feeling of renewed hope when soon after the vigil, Chief Walls announces that they're re-examining the physical evidence in Ginny's case. Advances in forensic testing means that the surviving evidence can be examined in ways not even dreamed of at the time of Ginny's murder. 
they still have a number of items taken from her house. The broken glass, paper towels, and stockings from the murder scene, all safely stored in an evidence lockup. By now, DNA sampling is commonplace in forensics, and they set to work testing the blood samples that were found on all the items. There's a chance that someone capable of such a brutal attack has committed more than just this one crime. And if that's the case, maybe the killer already has a sample on file. There's a spark of excitement when the lab report comes in. It confirms that the blood came from Ginny and one other person. Chief Walls now knows for sure that they have her killer's DNA. What they don't have yet, though, is a match to an existing profile. Using forensic genealogy, they go one step further. From the sample they have, they can search for any relatives of the killer that might be in the system and ultimately trace that back to whoever murdered Ginny. Sadly, this too proves fruitless. It feels like a huge letdown, but at least they have the killer's genetic fingerprints. They don't know it yet, but the final piece of the puzzle is only a year away. That piece goes by the name of local resident Jesse Aylward. He's in poor health, and any day now, he's going to drop a bombshell that reignites Ginny's case in a way that even Chief Walls can't have seen coming. Jesse Moses Aylward was born on March 9, 1961, and lived in the town of Brockton, 12 miles west of Pembroke. He was a local handyman and owned his own paving business. Little else is known of him, other than he had a reputation as a hard worker. Folks described him as intelligent, a skilled and creative craftsman. Like Ginny, he was known to have a generous nature, in particular towards local homeless people. He was never linked to the Ginny Hannon case back in 1984. But all that changes on Monday, February 3rd, 2020. Pembroke police receive a call from someone claiming to be a friend of Jesse Aylward. The friend, whose identity is never shared publicly, tells officers that Aylward passed away in Brockton Hospital just yesterday. His cause of death is unknown, but before he died, he made a startling revelation. Aylward allegedly told his friend that he had killed a woman in Pembroke years earlier. Other than this, the level of detail the police reveal about the conversation with their anonymous tipster is sketchy to say the least. They don't even specify whether Aylward's friend is male or female. But it's more than enough, though, to breathe new life into one of the oldest open cases Massachusetts police have on file. Chief Walls moves quickly. A warrant is obtained to collect samples of DNA from Jesse Aylward's body. A team is dispatched to Broxton Hospital to do just that before Aylward can be released for burial, and they're able to get a sample of his blood. They speak to his remaining family, his sister Paulette, and brother-in-law Alan, as well as nieces and nephews, to build up a picture of the man who allegedly claimed to be a killer. They learn that Aylward grew up in Pembroke as a youngster and actually lived near Jenny Hannon. As they start to dig into his past, they find out that Aylward wasn't as good-natured as previously believed. In the mid-1980s and 90s, he had multiple run-ins with the law, Investigators don't share specific details of any offenses or jail time, but they do release a picture to the press when the story breaks. 
is from back in 1986 when Aylward was only 24. There's an air of Charles Manson about it. The young Aylward has that same mane of black hair and goatee beard, but unlike Manson's wild-eyed stare, his is flat and emotionless, boring a hole into the police camera that took his mugshot. Again, they declined to reveal what he had been arrested for at the time of the picture, other than to say it was from 1986, two years after Ginny's murder. Around this time, they also search Aylward's house in Brockton for additional DNA samples, as well as any other evidence relating to the case. If what Aylward told his friend is true, he wouldn't be the first killer to keep a trophy to remember his crimes by. As it turns out, the search turns up nothing that ties him directly to Ginny. Making that connection will be up to the forensics team in the lab. While they wait for the results of his blood test to come back, there are other questions still to be answered. What possible motive did Aylward have for killing Ginny? And why had Aylward's anonymous friend waited until after his death to share what they knew? Had Aylward made them promise to hang on until after he died? Or did they hesitate out of some kind of loyalty to him, not wanting to alert police until he was beyond any kind of punishment? Chief Wall of the Pembroke Police stays tight-lipped on the friend's identity. He does say, however, that no action will be taken against them for effectively helping Aylward avoid prosecution. Even if police had been made aware in the months leading up to Aylward's death, it's unlikely that any prosecution would have been brought quickly enough to convict him before he passed away, assuming that he would have been deemed fit enough to stand trial in the first place. Even now that the case finally feels like it's moving towards a resolution, it doesn't happen quickly. It'll be another full year before police are willing to reveal what they've found. When they do, the resurgence of such a cold case grabs the attention of the national press, even making the New York Times. The headlines that run have been nearly four decades in the making, but the results are in. Ginny's family have some, if not all, of the answers they've been looking for. It's Thursday, March 18th, 2021. Plymouth County DA Tim Cruz has called a press conference to announce the results of their investigation into Jesse Aylward. Ginny Hannon's family are in attendance. They've already been briefed in advance. Many of the journalists in the room try and read their body language for a hint of what's about to be shared. COVID is still running rampant across the nation, and the Hannon family are all wearing masks as a result so it's impossible to pick up anything from their expressions. Cruz doesn't beat around the bush. The results of the DNA tests are conclusive. The samples taken from Aylward's body match those on the paper towels, broken glass, and stockings taken from Ginny's house. There is no doubt that Aylward was there that night, and in the absence of any evidence to suggest he had an accomplice, he is the man police have been looking for since 1984. I would love to be able to tell you exactly what happened in the case of Mrs. Hannon, he says, addressing the crowded room. All I can tell you is the evidence we have. We are confident that Aylward did it. It's taken a lifetime to get this far, to have her killer named, but finally, the Hannon family can put a face to the man who killed Ginny. As huge as this is, there are still questions that they cannot answer. A big element of any investigation is establishing a motive, 
and police are unable to do anything other than voice the same speculation they did back in 1984. That Aylward's motive was money. Cruz doesn't shy away from these unknown elements. The DNA gets us to the people, but doesn't necessarily get us to exactly what happened, he says. I'm always hopeful that we will be able to get that information to make sure we can give some final resolution to the victims in these cases. The victims are something that is never forgotten. There is speculation that Ginny may have crossed paths with Aylward some time before she died. Neither the police nor Ginny's family can say for sure whether that is true though. What police do confirm is that of all the people they looked at in the initial investigation, Aylward was not one of them. Chief Wall doesn't elaborate as to why he had been overlooked. Could it have been an oversight? Aylward's criminal record, coupled with his violent past, should have popped up somewhere in the course of their inquiries. For Ginny's family, hearing Tim Cruz named Ginny's killer is as difficult as it is cathartic. Her niece, Judy Hannon, says she would rather have seen the killer led away in handcuffs. Judy stands alone at the press conference, an array of microphones held no more than a foot from her face. In her hands, she holds a 12 by 8 black and white picture of her Aunt Jenny. I think there is more to the story and I'm praying people come forward, she tells reporters, desperate to know more about the man police now say killed her aunt. Tell us his story. We deserve to know. She does share that she recognized Aylward's picture when police first shared it, although she hadn't known his name. Sure, I'd seen him through the years, she confirms. I just don't understand why he had to kill her. Despite the unanswered questions and mystery over Aylward not being questioned back in 1984, the Hannon family have nothing but praise for the unrelenting work of the police department. Richard Hannon, Jenny's nephew, has his turn in front of the press too, and says he feels a sense of closure. It's nice to have a name, to see the effort that they put in wasn't wasted, he says. Maybe it will jar someone's memory. Ginny's family might never get the answers they still yearn for as to the motive for her murder. But for now, they, and Ginny, are at peace for the first time in almost 40 years. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Nathan Williams, the kind of man no town wants within its city limits, a three-time convict for robbery and abuse of underage girls. He's already serving 30 years, but a confession made by a friend on his deathbed suggests that his worst crimes have yet to be punished. There are allegations that he knows more than he's saying about one of Missouri's most notorious disappearances, that of 13-year-old Gina Don Brooks. She vanished on a hot summer's night in 1989, and Fredericktown, Missouri has never been quite the same since. After all these years, could Williams be the key to finally laying this decades-old mystery to rest? Death 
Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor Jane O. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Thank you.